Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In this week's Trending News EU episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Jack Young and Ali May to talk about what's trending now. Jack, what headlines have you been following lately? So I wanted to cover a really interesting piece of research that was recently commissioned by a cancer research institute in Washington, the United States. And it really brought up some thought-provoking questions around the relationship that exists between ethnicity data and healthcare systems. And to give you a little bit of background, this research centered on clinical risk prediction models. And the study team highlighted how there is currently a lack of consensus on how race and ethnicity should be included in these clinical risk prediction models that are ultimately used to guide really key healthcare decisions. And interestingly, many groups have actually called for removal of race in clinical risk algorithms, yet it really remains unclear in terms of the impact of doing this, particularly on those that come from minoritized racial and ethnic groups. And so to better understand the effects of race and ethnicity parameters, this team honed in on risk prediction for colorectal cancer recurrence using race neutral and race inclusive models. And at a very high level, the finding of this study essentially showed that the model that included ethnicity data actually improved accuracy and it had improved predictive accuracy for those minority groups. This is a really eye-opening piece of research, Jack. And from what you're saying, emitting race and ethnicity from these types of clinical algorithms, it could lead to inappropriate care recommendations for patients who belong to some of those minoritized racial and ethnic groups. And I guess ultimately could contribute to health disparities. Jack, have you seen any similar research that's been carried out in the UK or in Europe around race and ethnicity data more broadly and how it's used and what have those revealed? To first take it back a step, I think it's really important to mention the actual quality and consistency of this ethnicity data itself, because it's recently come under the spotlight in the UK and something that the data for science and health team at the Wellcome Trust, which is a well-known charity here in the United Kingdom, recently investigated. They uncovered that ethnicity recording is less accurate for minoritized ethnic groups than for white British people. And in more than a third of cases in which this trust evaluated, the electronic health records for minoritized ethnic groups didn't actually match an individual's ethnicity. Consistency was particularly low for the other Asian, other white, other mixed, other black, and any other ethnic groups. They also uncovered that ethnicity categories vary across the different data sources and the understanding of the ethnicity varies very much between the different groups. And to give you a tangible example, way back in 2001 census, there wasn't actually a category for Arab. And so anyone that might ordinarily use that category to identify themselves probably had to use other instead. It's really interesting, Jack, because if we take those recommendations from the Washington Institute, it sounds like in the UK, we might actually struggle to implement those given the quality of data that we have when it comes to ethnicity recording. Were there any solutions put forward by the Wellcome Trust or other initiatives that you've come across when seeking to improve this quality of data? And I think this is especially relevant, Jack, in light of 
some of the challenges that were brought to the public really during COVID-19 around the need to strengthen policy action to prevent ill health in deprived and ethnic minority communities? And what can public health bodies do to implement significant change? Yeah, it's a really big challenge, Ollie. I think there's lots of ideas, momentum out there in terms of what could potentially be done to kind of close this gap in terms of this ethnicity reporting and integrating that into healthcare decisions. And from a welcome perspective, in terms of that charity, they strongly suggested that the need to demonstrate the social value of the data collection to support it. And interestingly, NHS England is taking steps to improve ethnicity recording and health records. And the government has said it will introduce ethnicity recording in death certificates, which is an interesting development. The Office for National Statistics, which is another uh, governmental body in the United Kingdom, are also producing a series of studies exploring the quality of ethnicity data in NHS databases and examining whether these quality issues may bias epidemiological and public health studies. And they're also developing solutions to mitigate biases in the underlying data. So some good steps from the Wellcome Trust in particular, as well as the government in terms of trying to address this important issue. And it makes sense that they focus on getting the stakeholders brought in and showing the value of the data that we're collecting to really improve the quality of it and get those populations brought into the process. It's positive to see the, the ONS and those public health bodies actively looking into this. And I think it's clear unless there is more consistency in the way that ethnicity is captured in the UK and more time is invested in engaging those groups, then if we don't do that, we're going to continue to exacerbate those existing inequalities. And this relates, Jack, back to another news topic I saw recently from the universities of Cambridge and Leicester. And this is in relation to chat GPT. And that when we have these large language models and large prediction algorithms, the data that is being put into them could entrench inequalities for ethnic minorities and low-income groups. So when we are going to move towards a world where we use these predicted models more, it's really important to understand any biases that exist in the data and tackle those issues directly from the source. I think this story really brings together so many elements around healthcare that have been percolating on a global stage. I'm coming out of our recent Trending News US recording, and this just really strikes me to being similar to some of the conversations we had around AI and responsible use and the recognition that there needs to be really strong data stewardship in order to implement these models, as well as some of the trends that we're seeing here in the States around changes to the FDA requirements around clinical trial diversity to try to make sure that we have not only data included for race and ethnicity in terms of medical records, but also in terms of the development of drugs, therapies, and clinical protocols themselves, because there is this really tenuous potential, right, in terms of needing to be responsible and capture the opportunities around inclusion of this data in clinical algorithms as the original study that you had cited referenced, but there's also this potential to reinforce those biases if we do not take the appropriate data cleanliness and data stewardship steps to make sure that we have the right data included within these new sources of models and technology. But I think all good progress in the name of health equity and access I think another mirror of what we're seeing here in the U.S. that's making its way across the pond has to do 
with access in the retail setting, another way to perhaps bring healthcare to different and underserved populations. Ali, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely, Jen. And this is a trend that we're seeing in in Europe and the EU at the moment. So as we know and have discussed on the pod many times before, there is significant pressure on both healthcare professionals and on the healthcare infrastructure in the UK and Europe. And this has never really been higher. And just to quote a couple of metrics in the Netherlands, for example, I saw that their current healthcare costs as a percentage of GDP are 10%. And in 40 years time, they'll be 18%. So nearly a doubling in their output that is going to need to go to healthcare. And then also in Europe, there are now over 50 million people that have more than one chronic disease. So at the same time as this is happening, there are many devices that are needed to to perform interventions, and these are becoming more capable, more user-friendly. They're being enhanced by technology, and it's becoming easier for untrained users and your average citizen to use these. And a change that I've really noticed in the last five to 10 years in the UK is with defibrillators. So in many sports clubs and public spaces now, you will see defibrillators which are designed for untrained people to use. Healthcare technology is also becoming smaller and it's occupying less space and it's fitting more easily into tight non-traditional settings. So where in the past you'd have this huge machine in a hospital that needed trained healthcare professionals, now you could have a much smaller, easy to use machine performing the same service. So potential being explored that's tapping into both of these trends is using retail spaces for healthcare services. Now in the US, this is an established model, as Jen mentioned, with Walmart and Target and CVS. Whereas in Europe and the UK, this is a more nascent industry. And some of the some of the shops that our listeners will have heard of, Boots and Asda, are moving more into this space. Yeah, really exciting developments, Ollie, and I think anything that can uh, alleviate the pressures on our healthcare system, the NHS, uh, are much warranted and needed. So I'm really love to know more about the types of healthcare activities and or interventions that could be transferred to the retail arena, as you mentioned. And of course, when I think about the retail arena, boots and others, like you mentioned, I think of things like getting my eyes examined or having my flu vaccination, but what else could be in scope in addition to those things and what are some of the perspectives from European consumers towards this shift in movement? There's a real range of medical activities that can take place in a retail setting so from very basic ones like offering prescription services through to intermediate services treating mild illness mild injuries and then I think with the improvement in technology We could even see more advanced services like complex biometric screening, perhaps even managing chronic conditions and offering GP level advice and and healthy lifestyle consultation in these retail settings. Many of these more advanced services are already available in US stores and currently European retailers are really playing catch up in this space. And having said all that, Europe really is a viable contender to make huge strides with in-store healthcare. And Europe is currently identified as the fastest growing market for retail healthcare in the world at the moment. A recent study that we will link to in the show notes shows that European consumers are comfortable with certain healthcare interventions happening in a retail setting. So comfortable not having a healthcare professional provide those services. A UK and Irish survey showed even more willingness to seek healthcare outside of a clinic or a hospital 
And in these countries, big players such as Boots really stand to gain the most from these opportunities. And how can they modify their go-to-market and how can they modify their store proposition to seize this opportunity? So from what you're saying, Ollie, it seems there is a real significant appetite, particularly in the UK and Ireland, towards consuming more healthcare service in the retail space. As you mentioned, playing a little bit of catch-up to the United States, which I think we do in a lot of different areas. So again, true here. But I'm really interested to know what could be some of the potential blockers or challenges in terms of the relationship between retail and NHS, given you have that different kind of healthcare system dynamic here versus the United States. And what other examples of convergence of retail and healthcare can be seen in the UK and across Europe more broadly? It seems as though many of the blockers that did exist between retail and the healthcare system are gradually dissipating. I know that we reflect often on the convergence of healthcare and we're definitely seeing it in this arena. So for instance, whilst community pharmacies in England do not currently have read and write access to NHS patient health records, the relevant body last year recommended this should change due to the nature and complexity of pharmacists' involvement in care and treatment. And Boots in particular is really seeking to position itself as a key partner to the NHS. And they've already launched a private diabetes screening pilot in seven Boots stores in Manchester, London and Birmingham. They selected these cities as they were areas of high prevalence of type 2 diabetes and they're really seeking to capitalize on this new model of partnership between the NHS and the private sector. Asda, which in the UK our listeners will know is a supermarket, have also launched diabetic eye screening in some of its stores. And they're working closely with the NHS and local hospitals to ensure that the then onward referral process is smooth and effective. And we notice the same trend is appearing Europe-wide. In Spain... Vivanta, which is a retail clinic, now offers dental, aesthetic and nutritional services. What you're saying, Ollie, clearly there is a really large opportunity here to what I like to call relocalize parts of healthcare, taking certain interventions out of the clinics, as you mentioned, in the hospitals. And we could, I think, as a result of this, see a more balanced equation between both consumers who could gain access to more effective treatment, gain faster recovery times and improved results as well as the broader healthcare industry, which doesn't have to bear this increasing burden that it's facing alone. I think what this shift to retail really illustrates is like the bringing together of a couple trends, particularly in the UK, but also things that we've seen here stateside in terms of, you know, really balancing alleviation of the workforce crisis and shortage when it comes to healthcare professionals with shifting consumer demands in terms of how expectations have changed when it comes to timing and access. I think in so many other spheres of our lives, we are used to, I won't say instant, but quite, quite short times between what we're looking to accomplish and the gratification or alleviation of that need. And healthcare is really trying to keep up. And the pivot to retail helps meet consumers where they are and allows them to circumvent some of the sort of archaic maze when it comes to certain aspects of the healthcare system. And I think wellness and health in general is more top of mind for the average consumer than maybe it has in years past. So they're thinking about it more regularly. They're thinking about it in all aspects of their life while they're out and about doing their shopping. And they want to be able to access services in a way that's convenient to them and on their timelines versus sort of beholden to the larger healthcare system. And I think It's really the advances 
in technology that have helped enable this, but that can be a bit of a double-edged sword, right? It's one thing to be able to access technology, but it's another thing, particularly in the healthcare space, to be able to really understand it and use it in an effective way that doesn't you know, increase stress to the patient or cause ill health outcomes. Yeah, really interesting points you mentioned there, Jen, and the importance of uh, digital in terms of enabling patients and improving their health. I want to cover a report from the World Health Organization who have been calling for urgent investment in digital health literacy. And as all our listeners will, will know very well, the world of healthcare has gone digital in so many different ways, from having telehealth appointments to receiving blood work results to messaging your doctor, and I could go on and on and on. And these digital health solutions have the potential to make healthcare much more equitable uh, by increasing things like healthcare access, addressing unmet needs, as well as providing more personalized care for patients. However, a recent report published by the World Health Organization has shown that just half of the countries in the World Health Organization's European region have policies to improve digital health literacy. And this rather sadly has left millions of people behind. I'm really quite surprised by this story, Jack, especially after COVID-19, which in so many ways seemed to accelerate the trend towards creation and use of digital health tools and policies such as telemedicine and user-friendly health apps. What do you think are some of the primary drivers of this current gap that you described in digital health literacy? And then I guess to a point you made earlier, how does a lack of digital health literacy pose a risk to health equity? So in terms of the key drivers of this issue, many countries actually still lack a dedicated entity responsible for the overall oversight of mobile health, and just 15% report evaluations of government-sponsored mobile health programs. And more broadly, the World Health Organization found that in many countries, digital health programs have so far been developed on a more ad hoc basis, rather than via a longer-term strategic approach and investment. So ultimately, there is a clear unmet need for more comprehensive digital health initiatives across Europe. And sadly, it's actually people with limited or no digital skills who are often the ones who stand to gain the most from these types of tools interventions, like the elderly or rural communities. There's almost an irony in there, Jack. Whilst digital health is improving healthcare equity in so many different ways, we've also got rapidly advancing technology that may exacerbate exclusion and widen that digital divide. And as you said, that can continue to leave some of these populations behind. What methods has the World Health Organization proposed to improve digital health literacy in Europe? Well, thankfully, there have been several methods outlined by the World Health Organization. Firstly, ensuring that reliable, low-cost broadband or internet can reach every household and every community across Europe. Second, ensuring that governments and health authorities start viewing digital health as a strategic long-term investment rather than a luxury just for the few. Third, building trust in digital health and working with many different stakeholders, including patients, citizens, health workers, to help them all feel confident that their data is safe and secure. And lastly, more collaboration and knowledge sharing of digital health tools, including things like electronic patient records, across borders, both national and international. So with how crucial digital health literacy is, these transformation efforts will unfortunately be unlikely to succeed without strong partnership between those digital disruptors 
many of which we've spoken about on the pod before, and the relevant public sectors to create a coherent pan-European integrated approach. And I think without that public body and government buy-in, many of this uh, won't be realized in helping these underserved communities. And it's really promising to see, Jack, those very clear, tangible efforts that public bodies can make from the World Health Organization report. And it'll be interesting to track this over time and see if more European nations do get bought into the need for this and do start investing in making sure that this digital divide doesn't grow and that the recommendations to improve digital health literacy in the long term are implemented. As I'm reflecting on all the stories we've covered in this episode today, I'm really struck by the opportunity that exists right now in terms of bringing more equitable access to healthcare across Europe and the world. So I'm really excited to see what will happen next. As always, we know the only constant in the healthcare industry has changed, so I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode, where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.